Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Have you thought of breaking through? Ain't it part of what you do? Catch a victim while he's dumb. Break his larynx with his high time. It's time to get high over the same goddamn dream. It's exactly what it seems. Wake up today just to lay back down and say, I won't be coming back. Let's call it a heart attack. Give me some of that knack. This is just a final payback. They all flipped on me, took my passions, left me be. When I had a place to sit, goddamn attitude to fit. Talk real smoothly with a spit, but things have changed and I have quit. Got nothing to look forward to, but a backlash full of lies. You're too late where you're going, this is fate. It's much too late. You're much too late. Like a piss hole punk with his nose turned up and a fragrance on your own. Tell me, tell me what it's like to be alone. And let's not forget the scarface prick. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those conscious coma-inducing vibrations. First-time listeners out there, thanks for finding us. Please come again. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. We do admire you for your curiosity. Joining me tonight is a very special guest, Mr. Philip Kraske. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. For those of you that are wondering, yes, I know, we haven't been on YouTube in a while. And it'll remain that way for another two weeks. And joining me right now is Mr. Philip Kraske. How are you, sir? Really good, Michael. How are you? I'm fantastic. I can't complain. And thank you so much for your time. I know it's uh, kind of early where you're at down there in Spain. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, getting on towards four in the morning. But that's all right. We're, uh, we're, we're used to late hours here in Spain. Just, Very uh, nice. Just go to Madrid on a, on a Friday or Saturday night and... Uh, Things things are, are pretty pretty busy until six and seven in the morning. So oh yes, and you know, Mr. Kraski, the last time we talked, you know, the world was sort of in a standstill. You know, things were kind of up in the air as they still are now. You know, much 
hasn't really changed. Yeah, well, back when we talked the last time, uh, the uh, COVID crisis uh, didn't exist. Uh, right. We talked uh, two years ago when my last book came out. And, uh, of course, you know, then nobody was even thinking about it. Not at all. So uh, that was about six months before COVID hit. So, yeah. What's the situation out there in Madrid? Uh, in Spain, there has been very little resistance to uh getting the COVID shots. And I think that people with the full complement of shots is now in about 75%. Um, and the other 25%, of course, is young people uh, and children and things like that. Um, and so uh, really the uh, situation here is very is very quiet for COVID. The, the uh, economy is rebounding finally. Uh, Spanish economy, uh, one of its main pillars is tourism. And that finally is on the rebound uh, to everyone's uh, relief. What else? Um, hospitals uh, had a bad time last year because it's all you know public administration hospitals here, and they were uh, they went through all four or five waves of getting swamped, and then um, you know the thing would relax and there would be another wave. Now the situation is much better. There are very few COVID cases, and uh, those that occur are. Uh, are generally very light. So, uh, in general, the, the uh, public acceptance of uh, the, the vaccination campaign has been very positive. Interesting. I thought it would be quite the opposite out there. Why is that? Resistance towards the whole mandate uh, worldwide. It seems a lot like lots of people are protesting that. It seems like that's mm -hmm. kind of sort of died down out there. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the, the basic differences between Spanish life and American life is that Spain has a much more homogeneous culture and America has a very heterogeneous culture. People are more very individualistic there, right. which makes for more interesting individuals. But I think uh, it uh, makes, you know, it's it's more of a, a boiling cauldron of, of, a, of a culture. Um, but here they uh, there is a lot more general trust in government with regard to, for example, health uh, um, matters. And so uh, here there was very little um, even really discussion and debate uh, about whether uh, whether or not getting back uh, vaccinated was a good idea. People just accepted it. Just about everybody got uh, vaccinated and, and that was all. Interesting. And you yourself are vaccinated, correct? Yes, I, I got my two shots. Not all that happy uh, about it, um, but I finally just said, "Well, I guess I'll just do it." And you caved in. Hope, 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 <laughs> hope that hope that this stuff doesn't kill me. Um, but anyways, I, I have a great deal of respect for the people who don't get vaccinated. I, I think that they might have the last laugh. Well, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like um, being vaccinated or not, you're still going to get this virus, it seems like to me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It that's seems true. like you can't really protect yourself from this thing. Yeah, well, the idea is that with the, the shot, it's the if you get it, yeah. the symptoms are, are going to go away without uh, big problems. That at least is in theory, and it seems to be true. Um the uh, number of cases, the number of deaths, etc., has gone way down uh, over the past uh, four or five months. So we'll see if it's, uh, you know, if it's going to be, if it's going to be really beneficial. 
Um, if, it, if it's not, and if the critics are right, you know, one of the interesting, uh, one of the interesting results of all this, I think, is going to be between Israel and Palestine, because apparently the Israelis by now have all had three shots. Yes. And if the shots kill them, I think in five years, the Palestinians will be able to walk in Jer- into Jerusalem and take over again without any trouble. <laughs> I think you might be right on that. To, to defend the place. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And did you get the Moderna shot or the other one? Uh, I got Pfizer. AstraZeneca. Oh, you got that one. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite widespread here at the British company. Was there any reason why you got vaccinated? I'm sure my audience is probably asking that. You know, lots of them out there are kind of um, resisting. Well, like I say, mainly because my brother-in-law is a, a doctor. I asked him about it, and he 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 recommended that I get the shot. That's mainly that's mainly it. Um, Fair and enough. also, well, you know, if you want to travel anywhere on oh, an yes. airplane, if you don't have your shots, you know, you you face uh, real problems. You really do, and that's that's the other side of it. What do you make of that, though? Um, of the you know, of the whole being o- obligatory, I, I think it's terrible. Yeah, the whole but, mandated sort of thing to to travel. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's terrible. But you know, the transmission of the disease is the same whether you have the shot or not. Um, so it doesn't seem to make much sense to me. But I think that behind all of this, behind the the you know this this sort of heavy-handed push to get everybody vaccinated is also just the fact that governments around the world are desperate to get their economies back on track. Yeah. And if you're a politician and you're a president or a prime minister, you're thinking, well, okay, the critics might be right. This this might be uh, this might be a, a bad thing to do. We might have really bad reactions from these shots five years down the road, but that's going to be somebody else's problem, not mine. For me, for the moment, I have to get the economy back to where it was before the crisis. And and I think that's the thinking in many governments. Absolutely. They are trying to capitalize on this one way or another. And uh, someone's raking in lots of money, Mr. Kraske, and it's not me or you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. They're making that's a killing sure. with this, my friend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people are making making big money out of it. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if, uh, you know, you know, I don't know if the push comes from governments or from those from those big companies. But I, I would imagine it's a combination of both. I think, you know, back in, you know, March of uh, of last year, when, you know, everybody's economy was cratering, I think that that politicians were desperate to get uh, whatever they could uh, on the table and to uh, sort of, you know, defuse the crisis. And I think that's mainly what it's about. Right. If you can recall, there were some insider trading that was going on. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, yes. There was some sort of um, congressional insider trading that was going on, if I recall correctly, early in the year. Hmm. Yes, it's very interesting because that's exactly what happened with 9-11. So there's lots of correlation between 9-11 and the whole COVID-19 Trojan horse. Both of them were Trojan horses, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could be right. You could be right. I hope sure. I'm not right, though. Yeah, I, I hope, hope not. not. I hope not. And I even remember that uh, Pfizer and Moderna both were saying if you had these severe COVID vaccine side effects that, you know, you can't really sue them or do anything about it. Yeah, right, right. That's kind of scary. They, they have sort of, you know, very conveniently washed their hands of it, haven't they? They really have. And of course, if you recall, Pfizer and Moderna are both responsible for some heavy lawsuits throughout the years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
The things people forget. Yeah. But yes, everyone wants you to sort of throw yourself at the needle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And everyone's mm-hmm. biochemistry is a little bit different. So I'm glad that you were left unaffected uh, by the jab, my friend. Yeah, I didn't have any trouble with uh, with either one. So good, good, good. No side effects that were damaging for you, huh? No, no. I, I was a little bit tired uh, on the day at, uh, uh, on the day that I got the first shot, and that's that's about all. Um, I know someone who died because of the vaccine. Oof. We can't really say yeah. that, though. You know, they say, well, you don't know for sure, but, uh, yeah. well, I think we both know for sure, Mr. Kresge. Yeah, 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 oh, I my. think so. I think so. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's just an example of everyone's body chemistry being just a little bit different. Some folks can't handle the messenger RNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bummer. Yeah. What a world, Mr. Kresge. Who would have known yeah. that all this would have happened, you know, back when we first talked? I mean, if you would have told me that, I would have said, you're full of, you know what? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, I, I teach English here in, uh, in Madrid and I was talking with a student who works in a pharmaceutical company and she has uh, the shot, my student. And she said in her company, everybody got it. And the doctors who work in the company were all in favor of getting the shots. Nobody had any significant opposition to it. So. It was all As good. I say, there hasn't been there hasn't been much opposition to it here in Spain. Yes, it's much different out there. Like in let's say London or Australia, you see both mm-hmm. of those places really pushing back. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, sure you've seen that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The farther you go in into the north of Europe, the more the more pushback there is. Yes, lots of resistance there, and you know, it's a difference of cultures, like you were saying. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Here in America, we are a lot more aggressive, a little crazy out here. <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, you you should know you live you live in California. Oh, so, you know. <laughs> well, Mr. Kraske, I did see some uh, homeless person dressed up as the um, I believe it was like <laughs> like the Joker. Actually, it was some lady or a man wearing stockings. Some homeless man laying on the ground with their face painted like you know, like the movie The Joker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was wow. wild. Uh-huh. So yeah, you're right about that. People in America are nuts. Um, you you don't see that out there, do you? Out there in Spain, like people like that are insane. Like here in California, no, not so not so much. Okay, not yes, so much. I didn't think That's, so. Uh, it, you don't see so many, you know, loose cannons rolling around the deck in Spain. Uh, for one reason, I think because Spaniards are very social people and. I mean, everybody has their friends and, and people live in communities that are, are physically very small. I mean, Madrid is a city of four million people. And from north to south to drive that is about one hour. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. And uh, it has, uh, you know, uh, just a, a very, you know, physically uh, united uh, groups. You fly over Spain at night and you look down and what you see is just little puddles of light, which are villages. And in between, it's completely dark. There are no people living out in the country. Everybody lives in little small uh, villages physically near each other. And I think that's really important because it's necessary that everybody has friends and especially friends who will tell them that they are uh, going bonkers and uh, are not to be taken seriously and come on, uh, settle down, calm down, let's go have a drink. And that, I think, is very important in human life, to have people who will tell you to go jump in a lake and, you know, 
uh, when, when you're, when you're going, when you're, when your train is running off the tracks. Right. And, you know, that's, uh, that's, I think, one of the things that makes Spanish people, well, you know, happiness itself is, is difficult to find in, in, in any uh, kind of life. But at least what I see among Spaniards is that it's a very healthy people psychologically. Yes. It seems like there's less and less sort of violent crime that goes on there if you compare it to, let's say, the United States. Not even, well, We can't even compare it. Yeah, very little. And in fact, most of it is uh, committed by uh, the Latin Americans who have um, flocked to Spain over the last 20 years. Um, uh, um, the uh, the gangs, ah, the yes. few that exist here, and uh, um, crimes against uh, uh, against one's uh, um, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, um, or wife. Those are almost always committed by Latin Americans here. Interesting. Very little among, among Spaniards. So lots of domestic violence out there and petty theft. Well, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of it, but there is. What's going on? Most of it yeah. comes from Latin Americans. Interesting. Okay. Well, that I would mm -hmm. have never have known. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. glad for this insight here. I, you know, it, it's good to know that these things are happening around the world. You know, it's very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting yeah. to compare, you know, cultures, how they are and how they sort of are around each other. You know, people out here, not very friendly. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different sort of social situation there. I think it's what also makes marriage very difficult in America because, uh, you know, people ha have very different expectations when they enter a marriage and it's very hard for them to, you know, make, make the proper connections and, and get along together. Whereas in a much more homogeneous culture like Spain, that the roles of men and women are more traditional. And so when they get married, yes, they more or less come into the situation with the same expectations. And that makes things a, a lot, a lot easier. Interesting. And by the way, Mr. Kraski, are you married out there? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm married. I, I have a daughter and, and now I'm a grandfather. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. My goodness. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank I'm, you. I have uh, two uh, beautiful little grandchildren. One is four and one is two. Love that. Okay. And you're, you're enjoying mm -hmm. that? You're enjoying that part of life? Yeah. yeah nice. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. Mm -hmm. You know, for the longest time, I was someone who was sort of not really against it, but sort of thought to myself, you know, that will probably never be me. There, it's, it's a needle in a haystack sort of situation in my opinion, but as the years have gone by, you know, my my mind and heart have opened up to that sort of thing. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess that's that's that what happens um, as you age, correct? I suppose so. Yeah. Um I think that as you age you uh you you look for more things that are stable and and don't change much. Um so yeah, I think that uh I think eventually it'll, it'll come to you, Michael. So I think so too. To be honest with you, I believe I'm on that path. Mm -hmm. We right. shall see. That sounds good. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, of course, so much to talk about here. We haven't even begun to um, talk about your latest book here. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's uh, let's get down to it. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. And you have a very interesting book, A Legacy of Chains. Mm -hmm. A Legacy of Chains and Other Stories. Yes. It consists of uh, uh, the first half is... Uh, novella of about a hundred pages 
Um, people tell me it takes about two hours uh, to read. And then uh, the rest of the book is six short stories um, that I've uh, written over the, the past several years. And um, so I chose uh, six of uh, out of several, uh, you know, out of many stories and uh, put those in the book. Very nice. Very nice. And of course, there was a question here about Vietnam. What mm -hmm. evidence was there that POWs remained behind in Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the central uh, uh, story of the novella, uh, A Legacy of Chains. Um, the uh, it's a story that just uh, has always struck me as very being uh, very poignant and very sad. Uh, just to uh, review it for you know for your listeners. Yes, sir. After the uh, Vietnam War, uh, of course, the prisoners of war on each side went back to their countries. And there was a shock across Washington when Vietnam only sent back about 600 men. They were expecting well over 1,000, probably closer to 2,000. And then the Vietnamese very quietly let it be known to Washington that when the Americans pay the war reparations, in, you know, in the in the uh, the treaty, that they would release the rest of the men. They had done the same thing with the French in the French Indochina War uh, in the mid fifties. Yes, and the French did pay the money. In fact, they were paying until nineteen seventy one, but they got their men back. Washington, however, did not pay and. Um, so the Vietnamese kept the prisoners and about, uh, oh, about four or five years after the end of the war, there was a meeting between the Vietnamese officials and the American ones. Some of them actually were the same people who had negotiated the treaty and the Vietnamese, uh, took out a copy of a letter from President Nixon to the prime minister of North Vietnam, Pham Ban Dong, in which Nixon laid out in the, uh, you know, by numbers, uh, what America would pay to North Vietnam, which of course later became Vietnam. And the letter said that America would pay. This was the, this was the result of negotiations, uh, between the North Vietnamese and the Americans. The Americans would pay $3.25 billion, uh, up front and then one to 1.5 billion later on, depending on different conditions. The Vietnamese accepted this. And because it was a letter signed by the president, they figured that this was a binding agreement. Now, in the treaty, it didn't mention the numbers. It simply said that America would pay war reparations. Now, just to give you a, an idea, $4 billion back then is about $22 billion now. Okay, that would be the budget of uh, sort of a small um, federal department in Washington. Well, anyways, um, the North Vietnamese and the Americans had this meeting. The Vietnamese waved the Nixon letter at the Americans and said, what about this? This is black on white here. And the American answer was, that letter is not binding. It has no standing. And so the Vietnamese sort of got suckered. Um, getting war reparations was one of their main uh, demands to end the war. And here they, they didn't get anything. And so they just kept the prisoners. And for, oh, for 20 years after the war, there were uh, 
uh, people who saw Americans working out in fields, uh, prisoners chained together, etc. And uh, the uh, in Washington they they dismissed all of those uh, sightings and everything, and said that uh, no, this is just people who are um, uh, refugees in America, and they're trying to curry favor by spreading these stories. But there was actually a great deal of evidence that men were left behind, oh, although yes. neither Washington nor Hanoi uh, ever acknowledged it. Oh, yes. There was all sorts of atrocities that came from Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, my my my, uh, st- my story, the novella, yes. A Legacy of Chains, is about uh, nine men who escaped from Vietnam, American prisoners of war. They escaped by ship in the year 2010. So now these are men who are in their late 60s, early 70s, right? Right. They escape from Vietnam by ship, and they get as far. They're on a ship that's heading for New York, and they're going through the Mediterranean. And now, by now, somebody has figured out that the men have escaped by ship, but they're not sure what ship. And the maritime authorities are calling the ships in the area, try and telling them, search your ship. Uh, we think there are terrorists aboard and all of this stuff. And the captain of the ship that the men are traveling on gets cold feet and returns part of the money that the men paid uh, to him and sets them down in a raft as he's passing through the Straits of Gibraltar. And he calls the Spanish Coast Guard. Uh, and says, well, there's a, another boatload of uh, illegal immigrants trying to cross from Morocco into Spain. You better come out and pick them up. So the Coast Guard does and uh, tows them into uh, port in the south of Spain. And uh, the Americans want to talk to somebody from the State Department. So the story begins when uh, a State Department diplomat, Paul Clippin, goes down to the south coast there and talks to these men and realizes that they're POWs. And his first uh, impulse is to uh, put them on a bus and send them up the coast about 50 miles to an American naval base. But the men say, look, we're not too sure how the Pentagon is going to feel about us turning up because they have always uh, denied that any prisoners of war were left behind and that they would prefer that somebody from the State Department handle the situation, sort of scout the territory and figure out the best way to to repatriate the men. And that's basically the story, Clippin trying to repatriate the men to uh, the United States. And Philip, I got to ask you, when you come up with these stories, how long does it usually take you to sort of create all of these sort of um, these thoughts of yours and to bring it all together, uh, to say the very least? Well, it's kind of an interesting question. It, for me, writing a, a, a novel, especially a longer uh, piece of work, uh, is That's always be hard. Very sloppy, uh, sort of bewildering kind of uh, uh, experience. I started writing this story one way where it's just a doctor who escapes and arrives in America. That didn't work out. Then I wrote the present story from another point of view from a yeah, omniscient narrator that didn't work out. And then I finally uh, settled on the, um, the, the, the final version, which was sort of like uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, where you have one guy talking about the experience to, to a small group of people. In this case, um, Paul Clippin, the, the diplomat in modern 
times in, in the 2020s is telling a group of people what happened to him back in 2010 when he was confronted uh, by these nine men who had escaped. And that worked much better. And uh, the reason that the, the book is a, a novella, a short novel, yes. rather than a, a long one, is basically just that. You're talking that the, the format of the book is one person talking to a group. And of course, you can only do that for, for so long. And so it didn't right. work as, as a novel. It had to be a, a short novel. Yeah, that makes sense now. Now that you put it together that way. Um, but yes, it does seem like this would take you a while to sort of gather everything uh, here to sort of, you know, you've done your research, obviously. You are a great writer, by the way. Um, you know, Thank you. I have read many of your short stories here and your novellas. Great stuff, by the way. I do recommend everyone out there to sort of look into the work of Mr. Philip Kraske. I've said it before, you know, great stuff. Um, would be a great present to give someone this Christmas, by the way. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. just saying, yeah. just saying. Um, no, but thanks. yes, I, I do um, like your work. People who, who like my work generally are people who like, uh, John Le Carre, uh, or at least early John Le Carre. His later work was kind of so-so. Um, they like Graham Greene, um, Somerset Mom. Um, and th those are the people who, who generally, uh, um, really respond to my, my kind of fiction. Understood. And let me just ask you this. What do you make of the notion when people say America lost the war in Vietnam? What do you initially think? Well, I think that's, you know, sort of generally true. Um, it's, it's a lot like, you know, the, the case of Afghanistan where mm, yes. the government, uh, at the end in, in Vietnam controlled all of the major cities of, of, uh, South Vietnam, but lost in the country. And so the, the, the loss, America's, uh, defeat in Vietnam really was more of a political defeat than a military one. Um, and that's, uh, sort of the same in, in Afghanistan. They were never really able to defeat the, uh, the Taliban, who of course were the people who, uh, who were able to control the countryside, control the routes, the, the, the highways between cities and so on. And, uh, so again, it's, it's sort of a political defeat more than a military one. I agree with you. And, you know, going back to Afghanistan, I sort of feel like that whole war was designed not to be won. But to be an endless war. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, there are always lots of people who, uh, make, uh, make uh, careers and make money yeah. out of war. That's true. And when it's, when it's over, well, the, the money is over too, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's part of it. I, I have to say, I, I have a lot of, uh, I don't much like Joe Biden, but I think he <laughs> that's funny. took a very, very brave decision finally saying, okay, enough, we're leaving. And, um, Trump, you know, uh, negotiated a sort of a, uh, uh, peace treaty, uh, you know, that was, um, very much on the cards when Biden took office. So he gets a bit of credit, but, uh, Biden, you know, is the one who knew he was going to have to, Put up with the scenes of chaos at the airport and things like that. Oh yes, it's been chaos nonstop. Mm -hmm. um, it's been rather insane to watch all this go on, going on. You know, we've been at war with them for so so long, and it yeah. seems like it's never going to stop uh, completely. Mm -hmm. yeah, they say mm -hmm. it will, but um, I don't know about all that. To be honest, Mister Kraski, there's just too much money to be made out there for us to sort of you know call it a day and just sort of mind their own business. Well, I think now that they, I think they've probably 
figure they've gotten all they could out of uh, the Afghan conflict and their, you know, the, the war party, the, the uh, people are probably looking around for the next conflict. And I, I don't think it'll take them too long to get into it. No, not at all, I guess. It'll be a repeat of what we always had the last few mm -hmm. years, I'm afraid. Nothing will change when it comes to war. War never mm -hmm. changes. That's what I've learned. Yeah, yeah. My God. True. Well, you know, the old, the old expression, uh, when all you have is a hammer, you know, all your problems look like nails. That's right. Love that. And by the way, what do you make of John McCain? Um, well, McCain in, in, uh, in, in the matter of, of Vietnam and, yes. and the, uh, and the POWs, both he and John Kerry were sort of the leaders of the Senate Select Committee, uh, investigating the matter of POWs left over in Vietnam. This was back in the early 90s. Both men, of course, thinking of running for president. And they basically just buried the whole, the whole issue. Um, all of the, the evidence that was presented to the committee, they just ridiculed it, shouted it down, poured water on it. And, um, so at the end, none of the, uh, the people who were pushing very hard to get live prisoners back, uh, those people were, were simply uh, pushed aside. And the um, the uh, res result the, um, of the, the committee, their final conclusion was that there were no prisoners left in Vietnam, except maybe one or two who had gone over to the other side or were being kept in villages that the um, the central government didn't know about, things like that. And after that point, and this um, when and when Clinton came into office, the emphasis shifted from finding lives prisoners to finding the remains of prisoners. And the people who wanted to get live prisoners back were really angry about it, but there was nothing they could do. All of the forces were pushing to get the POW issue buried, and and they buried it good. And of course, after that, after uh, that committee ended, there was, uh, there was very little uh, uh, action after that. Some good books uh, written about it. Um, I have a bibliography at the end of uh, a legacy of chains that uh, anybody who's interested in the subject can uh, can look at. Um, some uh, sources in books, others in articles, others uh, on YouTube interviews that they can see. Um, but it's a fascinating subject, uh, and that's why uh, I, I wanted to write about it. Yes, I was just going to ask you what first got you so interested to write, to write about Vietnam and the story here, but I believe you covered that already just now. Mm -hmm. Well, I studied international relations in college. That's what I have my BA in. Ah, so that's how I started. It yes. was something that I, I heard about way back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I heard about it. And it's sort of a, a subject that I followed uh, now and then through the years. And uh, then a few years ago, when I was looking around for another uh, another uh, novel to write, I, I started with this. I, it, it eventually it started, that is, uh, as an idea for a novel, and you know, it developed into a, a shorter uh, a short no a novella. And by the way, you mentioned Bill Clinton earlier, and just recently mm -hmm. he is being hospitalized right now for like the fourth night, I, I recall. Oh, really? He's being treated for a very serious infection, but he seems to be improving, by the way. Um, oh. mm -hmm. yes, it, that's mm -hmm. quite, um, quite unfortunate for, uh, Bill Clinton, by the way. Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't. I didn't hear about that. We we get a lot of news on about America just on the normal news reports here. Um, but uh, that one I, I I hadn't seen. Yeah, you know, the, one of the very last photos I saw of uh, Bill Clinton was uh, him at the beach, and he didn't look very healthy. So, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised mm-hmm. uh, to hear that he has some sort of urological infection that developed into sepsis, which is very, very terrible, by the way. I know someone who died of that as well. Oof. Oof. You, you oh. don't want to see that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is terrible what it does to you. Yeah. And my God, yeah. psychologically, mm-hmm. you don't want to be around that. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, right. Holy hell. You know, one of the one of the real advantages of living in Spain is that when there's a media frenzy in America, you get very little of it here. So, <laughs> ah, yes. Well, you get bombarded That's, with it here, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, by the way, another piece of your work that you talked about here was Eleven Nine and the terrorist who loved bonsai trees. Another, another favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my my previous novel. That one uh, is uh, which I put out two years ago. Yes. Uh, that novel is uh, sort of a parallel. A parallel case to 9-11, which is why I called it 11-9. It's a mirror image. Yeah. And it, it deals with a, um, an, another terrorist uh, attack, which uh, was uh, a, a false flag, as I think that uh, September 11 was also a false flag operation. And uh, anyway, so I'm able to explore the whole 9-11 uh, controversy uh, just uh, looking at another case. So it gives you a lot more freedom to, um, look at the ins and outs of, of 9-11, of, of why, of how the, the media is manipulated, of, uh, how the, how the, uh, the, the, the controversy is prepared so that the media looks at it in one way and not another way. And, uh, and also it's, uh, it was a really fun novel to, to write and, and people tell me it's fun to read. Uh, Oh, yeah. I was very happy with uh, uh, the the reception. In fact, that's my my best selling uh, my best selling novel. I'm not surprised. It's a great subject and a good read for those that are interested. Look up Philip Kraske, Eleven Nine, and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. I believe you can find that at Amazon.com. Yeah, it's on all the uh, online stores, and the the Kindle edition, the, the electronic edition, is is available at Amazon, as with the. Uh, a legacy of change. And let me ask you this. Has your opinion on 9-11 changed at all after all these years? And I'm only asking you that. The, I'm only asking you the, the obvious here, but I know the answer to that. Um, but what I'm getting at. I think if, if my if my opinion mm-hmm. has, has evolved, it is the greater certainty that uh, the uh, the attacks were prepared long beforehand. The buildings were prepared to to be destroyed. Um, I think that after the, all this time and all the research that has gone into it, I think it's it's almost uh, uh, impossible to deny that what we see that what that the official version of 9/11 uh, simply doesn't hold any water anymore. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, after all these years, there are still people that are quite resistant towards anything having to do with the opposite of the official 9-11 narrative. People always mm-hmm. say, well, why would the government want to do that? And no, that's impossible. They would never do that. But then again, mm-hmm. you know, you look back in history and you start to see a sort of, you start to see a bit of a pattern, Mr. Kraske. Yeah, and yeah sure, sure. Yeah, you begin. You know, in in mm-hmm. uh, A Legacy of Change, among the, the short stories, um, the first short story in, in, in the book is called The Rainmaker, 
And it talks a lot about uh, how the public is is manipulated. Right. The story is actually sort of a satire. Um, it's about the raid in Pakistan to kill bin Laden. Yes. All right. And uh, anyways, I started that story with, with uh, just a basic fact, which is that it was widely reported that a couple of days before the, the raid on bin Laden's house, the CIA went to Obama and said, Mr. President, we don't know if he's there. We still don't see any evidence. And of course, the CIA, Michael, is not a gumshoe detective agency. Absolutely. It has, you know, all manner of means to listen, to see. And after six months of uh, observation of the House of Surveillance, they still didn't have any hard evidence that he was there. When, of course, all it would take is, is just what? Just, uh, just a, a recording of him. You know, has, has anybody seen where I left my glasses? You do that. You have that recording. You do the voice print and you've got it. And they didn't have it. And so that means that bin Laden wasn't there. Well, anyways, the story is about the CIA guy trying to explain this to all of the heads of intelligence and some people from the White House. And they're all in an uproar because the, the, the mission is all set to go and, and everything's ready. And so finally, the rainmaker, this one fellow, uh, an old hand uh, with, um, you know, psychological operations, uh, says, well, you don't have to say that he's not there. All you have to say is we don't have any hard information that he's right. there. Yes. And so they begin to spin the whole uh, story that eventually came out as uh, the story that was officially told. And uh, it's um, it's uh, he makes a lot of points, the rainmaker, about how the public is uh, manipulated. And one of the points he makes is that the government always plays at home when it tells these stories that if they as long as they don't make any big mistakes people will naturally believe what the government says and he says that the internet is not our enemy and the people who are who are investigating 9/11 and this and that they are not our enemies we need those people because they give us credibility with because those people are um investigating but they don't find anything that's really going to to turn the case uh, uh, around. And as long as, you know, we don't have uh, a big number of people who are believing what the critics say, what the investigators say, uh, everything will be just fine. So, Mr. Kraske, let me ask you this. When you first saw President Obama next to Hillary and Joe Biden when they were watching the raid, and they took mm -hmm. that photograph. Um, what did you initially think? Well, my initial thought was, okay, is this really from from the Bin Laden raid? It could have been from anything. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously, you know, I mean, these people aren't actors. They, they aren't. They aren't that uh, able to put the expressions on their faces and make it all convincing. Obviously, there's a lot of tension in the room, but it could have been from anything. It could have been from a from a mission that never even became public. So, you know, yes, I think that there was there was something important happening in the room. But was it was it the Bin Laden raid? Well, we'll never know. We'll never know. However, I recall an article going back to 2001 stating that. 
Osama bin Laden had died of an untreated lung complication, and that was reported by the Pakistan Observer. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that he died at the end of 2001. And in fact, the post-2001 videos of bin Laden that came out uh, are are obviously not bin Laden. If you take a good look at, at who's speaking there, it's, it's a different man. I would think that there are at least three different models of bin Laden that have been presented to the public. Right. And I still believe, you know, bin Laden was one of our guys. He was our connection to the Middle East. So mm-hmm. I well, for a long time for, he was for a very he, long time. You know, he he denied uh, specifically twice in the fortnight after September 11. He denied uh, involvement in the attack. And of course, why would a man who's carried out the most the most successful terrorist attack in history uh, then turn around and deny it? That the point of of terrorism is exactly the opposite. It's to say, hey, look what I did. I did that. How about that? That's that's why you do it. I mean, it's right. not it's not worth you know killing people on an airplane. That's not going to do anything. It's you know three thousand people died. It's a very sad thing, but you know it's not going to affect the country at all. Right. And you do it for a political a political end for a public yeah, relations. I agree. Uh, coup. And so, here and here's the thing. I'm not saying that you know Bin Laden is solely responsible for the attacks of 9/11. I'm not blaming him by the way. Um for the record here, I'm not saying he's innocent either by any means. I'm not saying he's completely scot-free. Was he involved in 9/11 to any degree? I would say yes and no. Was there outside help from different governmental factions? I would say certainly. You know, Michael, I, I'm, uh, I think it's very sad to say this, <laughs> but I think we will never know unless there is a full scale revolution in America uh, and we can uh, storm the, the CIA headquarters and their warehouses, wherever they are, and look at the papers. I think we will never know. We probably, yeah, uh, I don't think we could absolutely ascertain these sort of things. Um, we could only speculate for sure. Yeah. But yes, yeah. um the truth, well, the truth we can't handle, evidently. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we don't even yeah, have all the facts on JFK. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's quite sad that we live in this sort of world, but do you blame people for not trusting the government? I mean, I can't blame them at all. Um, no, I, I, think, uh, I, I think that's very normal. And, you know, as I, I, I talk about this a little bit in A Legacy of Chains, um, you know, at the beginning of the story, they're talking about there's sort of a revolution going on in yeah. America, and and the people who are there in this uh, having drinks after after a dinner uh, in in someone's backyard, um, they start talking about where did we where did we go wrong? Where did we go One wrong? One guy says, well, it was Reagan who said government is the problem. Another person says this. Another person says that. And finally, Paul Clippin says, no, it was Vietnam. And I think that's really where the enormous distrust of government. That's where it started. Because, yes. Yes, sir. Because especially at the end of the war, it was obvious that the government had lied to us. Right. And that thing they had said things were going well, when of course they weren't going well at all. And that, you know, here we had been defeated by, you know, a, a small third world country. And I think that's where really this sort of tumor of distrust began to grow. 
Some people say it was the Kennedy assassination, but I, I don't I don't agree with that. Yes. For, for, for the simple reason that the revelations and the real investigations about the Kennedy assassination really didn't bubble up to the uh, conscious of the public, you know, until several years until until the early seventies at least, and that really didn't make the the impact that the Vietnam War did. Because after all, the Vietnam War, you had your your friends, your brothers, your father were coming home or not coming home uh, wounded, and saying that you know that the war was was uh, going to be lost that we had no business there the people hate us etc cetera, etc cetera. and that really i think affected the people's relationship yeah. to the government the morale for sure took a hit there mm-hmm. and lots of mm-hmm. lots of people returning back from vietnam were just treated so badly too yeah right 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 because there was so much anger over, oh, yeah. over the war and and people who had actually gone so yeah also, people blame the sexual revolution as well. Yeah. In the early 60s. I never thought of that, but that's, that could be part of it, sure. I think, yeah, I think that has some, I think that does sort of add fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. My mm-hmm. goodness. Yeah, we, we, um, covered a bit here on, on Bin Laden, which I, I had no idea we would do here, but yes, always an interesting, uh, topic to discuss with you, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, He's really quite a figure. I, I sort of wonder what history will will say about well, yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. How will history remember Bin Laden? Yeah. It would be fun for you to write a book about that. Yeah, yeah, that would that would make that would make a good story. A it bunch would. Of guys, you know, sitting around <laughs> in a government office trying to head off uh, revelations about Bin Laden. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, there's your next mm-hmm. book. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a good one. There's a good one, actually. Yeah, there's lots of material there for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I like where that's going. And by the way, um, the story about Clippin, um, when you created this character, did you base it off of anyone in particular? Like a real person, per se? Uh, no, no, um, really none of my characters are based on anyone else. Okay. Are, are, are based on true people and even the few that are really, I just start with the basic kernel of that person, and it changes as I write the story. Um, in uh, in the among the short stories, one of them was called Pioneer Woman, um, which is about a person that I, I I knew when I was a boy. It was a, a woman in our neighborhood who was always organizing different activities for the kids, and she and the kids. <laughs> We're terribly enthusiastic, but right, yes. our parents sort of made us do it because, uh, this, this lady was, was going, you know, was organizing everything. And, uh, then later on, uh, many years later, uh, I heard that she had divorced and had gone through a series of jobs and been fired all, all over and had, uh, ended up taking a very low level job just in a shop selling uh selling candy and uh anyways i thought it was a very uh, uh sort of poignant story and, and and uh so that story is actually based on a real person oh wow okay very interesting mm-hmm. yeah she was a very sort of uh um uh, optimistic energetic woman always saying yeah you can do it you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it that kind of person and, i see uh, and her her life 
um, after her, her, her kids, uh, who were friends of mine grew up, just sort of fell apart. And, uh, that's why, that's why I wrote it. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. You need people like that in, in your life mm. to motivate mm-hmm. you and, um, so forth. Mm-hmm. You learn that later yeah. on as you grow older. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You definitely need that yeah. sort of moral support for sure. And, um, by yeah. the way, um, not to sort of take us off track completely here, but I, I definitely will be doing that at a moment here. Um, I gotta ask you, I, I know you are interested in all kinds of subjects out there. And one of the hot topics, which will always be a hot topic, it, it comes in waves, ufology. Well, it's a, you know, an interesting subject, uh, UFOs. And, uh, the thing that, that sort of intrigues me about it is, you know, let, let's say, I mean, let's say these people come from their planet to ours, maybe making a couple of stops along the way, but all right, let's say they're 500 light years away, which in the universe, uh, I mean, what I understand of the universe is just sort of, uh, you know, uh, crossing the street. It's not, it's not a long distance, but I think about that and they say that the speed of light is the fastest possible speed, right? Right. And so are we saying that these guys sat in their spaceship for 500 years? <laughs> yes. To, to get, to get to Earth. I mean, uh, that, that's, that's a lot of crossword puzzles. That sounds a little silly, you know, right? Michael, it, yeah, you know, I agree. 500 years. To, to, and of course, these are advanced people or people just to use a word. We're not talking about, you know, just people who are, you know, like a bear going to just go to sleep and wake up in 500 years. These are yeah. people who have things to do. And it makes me wonder if there isn't a speed faster than the speed of light because nobody's going to sit on their plane, on their, on their, on their spaceship for 500 years just to come to, to, to earth and, and what go to Burger King and try a whopper. Right. And, exactly. So I, I sort of wonder if, uh, if there isn't something that very fundamental about the speed and about the universe that we're missing, because if, if these, you know, UFOs have come from across the, the universe, they, they've been traveling an awfully long time or they found a better way to travel. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time. That's a, that's a lot of years. Just to get here. In 500 years, like I say. 500 years, that's insane. 500 light years is not a long, is not a big distance in the universe. I just think it's it's crazy to spend that much time, um, very much like in the Bible, you know, 40 years of wandering the desert. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's too mm-hmm. long. Yeah. <laughs> that's way too long. Yeah. I don't yeah. have the patience for that. The birthdays you missed. Oh, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you're right. It does sound something so... So ridiculous to, to even phantom. I mean, who would want to sit there for 500 years just to get to earth? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I rule that out. There's got to be a better way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, you think of these, these UFOs that people see. All right. Surely we're not talking about UFOs that have come from the same place. Uh, presumably they have come from different places. And so what, what are we to say? I mean, the, the other thing, the other observation that, that seems to me, uh, pertinent is that if they have, you know, they've come to earth from different places, it says to me that there's really very little to look at out there in the universe. And, and the earth is, uh, really one of the few interesting stops that you can make. So, 
you know, I mean, what are you going to do in the rest of the universe? Look at, you know, asteroids, you know, tumbling through space. And well, when you've seen one, you've sort of seen them all, haven't you? Yeah. But uh, the Earth, you know, we've got electronic waves uh, giving off and we've got explosions from uh, from the volcano here in Spain, down in the islands. And, uh, you know, this at least has a little bit of color. <laughs> but the right. rest of the universe looks to me like it's pretty dull. We probably won't ever know. Yeah. No, I don't think we will. I don't think I we'll don't ever know. know, but it's an interesting concept for sure. Um, maybe we are the last things on Earth. Who knows? But the fact that these things travel so far or the possibility of these things traveling so far, I kind of rule that out. I think perhaps there might be some sort of um, maybe interdimensional traveling that's going on that's much quicker and faster and efficient that we have even begun to sort of even have an, an idea about, really. And perhaps sure. these things are even coming from Earth. You never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it, it gives way to a, a lot of speculation, that's for sure. But more questions you know, than answers, maybe, maybe you know, if anything is left of the human race in 200 years, maybe they'll begin to get some answers, uh, because then they'll have you know, computers that you know can can do it, can do anything, yeah. I mean, calculate anything. I mean, but, 70 uh, years of government work on UFOs, I mean, you would suspect that they, they do have some sort of answer out there, but. Will they share it with the general public? I would say no. Yeah, I, I think they probably wouldn't. It, it would be really, really risky politically to do that. Uh, it would cause a lot of panic and, well, you know, who knows what else it would cause. Yeah, well, who knows? And by the way, on the on this subject of, you know, wild things going on, um, in terms of, let's say, Bigfoot, are, are you in favor of the existence of Bigfoot or do you think people are seeing something else? Oh, uh, Michael, I have no opinion. I don't know anything about it. I've, I've heard a little bit, you know, but uh, have there been more sightings of Bigfoot? Uh, yes. Oh. Over the last, uh-huh. over the last, like, let's say 10 years, I would say for sure. There's been plenty of stories that are quite interesting, you know, missing children claiming they were sort of like helped by a big, a big hairy man or whatever. Yeah. There's been stories mm-hmm. like that for sure. Mm-hmm. Just recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Is that really the truth? Was it embellished by the parents? Who knows, right? Yeah. Well, there's probably all kinds of uh, interests at work when right. people have a story uh, like that to tell. I have to say, Michael, I, if I saw a UFO yes, sir, and, and I was really sure it was a UFO, I would be very reluctant about talking about it for the simple reason that the moment you start talking about it, people are going to question your credibility. Oh, of course, and of I, course. And I think that the people uh, who do that really are are, are very brave. Um, and I would imagine that there are lots and lots of people out there who have had experiences of, of one type or another with UFOs, and they have gone home and maybe they told their husband and wife, Oof. and and the husband or wife said, look, I believe you, but don't ever tell anybody else because yeah, don't they'll never take us seriously again <laughs> yes. for the rest of our lives. I agree. There are people like that out there that will definitely judge you just by saying that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I agree. Sure. sure. You insist that you've seen a UFO and people are not going to take you seriously. Right. It's that well, simple. Yes. In my opinion, I thought it was a UFO, but was it a plane? It could be. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. I, I'm just, you know, I have no idea what it was. It was unknown to me. So, you know, it was a UFO in my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. 
What, what, when, when did that happen? Was that like 10 years ago, five years ago? Um, this was like two weeks ago. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I've seen this thing um, show up a number of times already. Is that right? Oh, yes. Wow. I'm going to have to get some video footage of this thing. Mm-hmm. If yeah, it shows up again, sure. yeah, and I'll, mm-hmm. sh- I'll show it. With, I'll, actually, I'll share the photos with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll get yeah, them, and I'll. You should you should put them on your website, and people would be really interested in that. That too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, um, for sure, these subjects are you know kind of um, those things that people sort of turn their uh, nose to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I true. Agree. That's true. I, I think that there's also just. Uh, a lot of people who do not want to see their world rocked. They don't right. want to see, hear anything that's seriously going to uh, change their worldview. They they just instinctively reject it. That's what, like I say, you know, about 9-11, the government always plays with the home field advantage. As long as they tell a more or less coherent story, people are going to believe it because they don't want, you know, any serious... Uh, change in their worldview. About 80% of people out there that listen to podcasts or um, these sort of things, um, Mr. Kraske, they're into murder and serial killers. So, you know, once I get some resistance, I say, well, I bet you listen to a bunch of serial killer stuff, don't you? And yeah, huh. most of the time. So, you know, you could always throw it back at them and say, <laughs> your mind is uh, twisted and dark and evil. <laughs> so you always yeah. have that there. Yeah, well, don't 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 say it to anybody, you know, when <laughs> yes. when you're within arm's reach, Michael. That's my advice. I'll, I'll stay away from that one. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, Mister Kresge, it's been a honor and pleasure to be um, here with you again and have this talk with you. I will definitely have to keep reading the book. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still halfway in there, and I'm still enjoying the book. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it. I've had a lot of good comments about it, and. Uh, uh, three people uh, have written some very nice uh, blurbs for me, and I even have a very nice one from uh, the president of the association um, that looks for um, uh, prisoners and, and, and MIAs. Um, yeah, the National Chairperson of the National Alliance of Families for the Return of America's Missing Servicemen, Janice Apodaca Rose, who wrote a very nice, uh, uh, a very nice, uh, uh, blurb for me and talking about how the, the novella, A Legacy of James, uh, uh, brought her to tears and, and oh, wow. uh, but how, how truthful it was and how that I had, uh, stuck to the, uh, pertinent uh, facts of the case, and uh, it's very nice of her. That is very nice of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always nice to read those sort of things. And yes, your work, I'm sure, is very appreciated by many of your readers out there, many of your supporters. And I'm sure this interview will help guide more people to check out your work. Well, I sure hope so. It's uh, always nice to get more readers. I don't get you know millions like Stephen King or anything like that. But the few that I, I do get, you know, Michael, I, it's um, it's uh, very gratifying, yeah. really, uh, to uh, have people read your work and say nice things about it. And uh, it's not really why I write. I write because I enjoy writing and I have a good story to tell. But uh, I really, uh, I really am gratified by uh, the response to my books. You know, humble, humble. As, as they are uh, in terms of sales. Very nice. Yes, it's always satisfying 
to have anyone comment about your your work, your creative sure. abilities. Yes, it's always nice to get a compliment there. And again, Mr. Kraske, I enjoy your work very much, and I always tell people to check you out. And once again, I do want to thank you for spending your time with us here. Okay, Michael, my my pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I would love to talk to you again, and we'll do it very shortly, sir. Okay, you bet. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was my guest, Mr. Philip Kraske. Definitely go check out his work. And my God, we're here for a good time. Not a long time. And I do apologize once again. Yes, I've been in and out here. And I do apologize for that. We haven't really been putting out shows. And Mike is still MIA. And of course, YouTube has deemed me dangerous. So we can't go back there just yet. I think I'm still out of commission for at least maybe, uh, I think maybe at least another two weeks before we can return to the live edition of the Michael Deacon podcast rendition of this program, which is always going to go strong. Remember, you can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Google Play, and a whole list of other places cast box my favorite don't forget boys and girls that's where you can catch us live and of course thank you so much for all the support on patreon.com forward slash michael deacon that is where gold falls from the sky and of course before i take us home here tonight i do want to thank all of you for pressing play we will do this again on the other side and with that said the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery until next time mahalo